Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Josh Gottheimer never had a doubt in his mind. At the end of August, he and a gang that dubbed themselves the Unbreakable Nine used their leverage to force House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to schedule a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill on September 27th, last Monday, hoping to cleave it off from the broader reconciliation package, which includes steep tax hikes on the rich and robust social spending. Following Pelosi's concession, Gottheimer and some of his allies huddled with donors to and leaders of the dark money group No Labels, which finances their campaigns and was instrumental in organizing the opposition. Gottheimer told them, you should feel so proud. I can't explain to you. This is the culmination of all your work. This would not have happened but for what you built. It just wouldn't have happened. Hard stop. You should just feel so proud. This is your win as much as it is my win. No labels even cut an ad for them. We live in a land made of ideals. From people who fought and suffered. We call them Americans. Fate of human dignity in our hands. Something that's bigger than yourself. How many guys do you think it takes? The America that freed slaves. Sir, I will not yield. We are all Americans. Representative Kurt Schrader, former chair of the right-wing Blue Dog Coalition, celebrated the victory's ability to let them focus next on fighting the reconciliation package, which he told the group he opposed. He said, let's deal with the reconciliation later. Let's pass that infrastructure package right now. And don't get your hopes up that we're going to spend trillions more of our kids and grandkids money that we don't really have at this point. But House progressives quickly responded, vowing to block the bill if it came to the floor. Washington Congress member Pramila Jayapal tweeted, It's not the infrastructure bill, then maybe the Build Back Better package down the road. We're going to deliver the entire Build Back Better agenda. When the decision was made to split the two bills, what we said in the Progressive Caucus, and we're a 96-member strong Progressive Caucus, we said that a majority of our members would not vote for the infrastructure bill. Gottheimer remained confident over the next several weeks, saying privately he was sure progressives would fold. But on Monday, it was clear there weren't enough votes to pass the bill, and Pelosi pulled it from the floor, rescheduling it for Thursday, a September 30th showdown. On CNN that day, Gottheimer gave the bill a, quote, 1,000% chance of being passed. You, you said earlier today, we're going to vote today on this infrastructure bill and that the vote is, uh, is not going to fail. Congressman, do you still stand by those two statements? A thousand percent, Wolf, and uh, I'm optimistic that, you know, it's going to be a late night, uh, but we've got the Chinese food out and, and so we're going to be we're gonna be eating late. He never got close and the bill was pulled again, leaving Gottheimer to meekly argue that the House had not been technically adjourned, which meant that Friday would still be the same, quote, legislative day and negotiations were ongoing and he was grabbing more Red Bull and Gatorade and, hey, where's everybody going? 
Uh, moderates keeping hope alive for a separate vote on infrastructure. Congressman Josh Gottheimer tweeting, it ain't over yet. We literally aren't adjourning. Negotiations are still ongoing. The journey of the Congressional Progressive Caucus from punchline to counterpuncher involved decades in the wilderness, followed by a rapid consolidation of power that took Congress by surprise this week. The roots stretch back to the 2009 and 2010 fight over the Affordable Care Act, when an outmatched CPC was outmaneuvered and forced to swallow a bill many of its members thought was far from what was needed, and one that fell short of red lines they had drawn. More than 50 members of the caucus had signed a letter vowing not to support any health care reform bill that didn't include a, quote, robust public option. And all of them did just that in the end. Two things were clear. The House and Senate needed Democrats who were more progressive, and those progressives needed to be better organized. A few new organizations popped up in an effort to bring that into being. One called itself the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, with its abbreviation a troll of the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which it was designed to counterbalance. Separately, bloggers Jane Hampshire and Glenn Greenwald, who later co-founded The Intercept, organized a political action committee to back progressive challengers in primaries. After the midterm wipeout of 2010, many of the fights would take place with little media coverage. Two of the first of the new era came in 2012, when a coalition of progressive groups, including the PCCC, intervened in two open primaries, one in San Diego and one in New Mexico. They were building on lessons learned from 2006, when a coalition of environmental, labor, and online liberal groups successfully defeated DCCC chair Rahm Emanuel's chosen candidate in several primaries. In San Diego, progressives were backing Lori Saldana over right-wing businessman Scott Peters. In New Mexico, they were for Eric Griego against the conservative Michelle Lujan Grisham. They lost both narrowly, and the losses reverberated. Earlier this month, Peters cast one of three votes against the party's measure to allow Medicare to negotiate the price of prescription drugs in the Energy and Commerce Committee. Lujan Grisham, however, has become governor of New Mexico, where she battles progressives from her statewide perch. Thanks in significant part to the organizing around Griego's campaign, which evolved into a statewide effort, Representative Deb Holland ran and won as a progressive. We spoke with Griego a few months ago, and if you haven't listened to that episode, it's still worth going back and checking out. In any event, when Holland was elevated to Interior Secretary, the primary campaign to replace her wasn't left versus center or left versus right, but who was the most progressive. Even in a race dominated by party insiders, it went to Melanie Ann Stansbury. This week, the newly sworn-in Representative Stansbury publicly vowed she would hold the line with the Progressive Caucus and block the bipartisan bill unless both moved together. That's a big shift from having Luhan Grisham in that seat. Adding rank-and-file members like Stansbury to their public list in some ways was more valuable than compiling a list of the usual suspects. What it did is it showed Pelosi that the opposition wasn't just deep, it was broad. Throughout the 2010s, the ability of Democrats to raise small dollars gradually expanded, punctuated and driven forward by the Senate campaign of Elizabeth Warren in 2012 and then the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign of 2016. Though he fell short, he showed that there was a major base of support for his democratic socialist agenda in terms of both people and money. That same year, Pramila Jayapal, an anti-war organizer whose inspiration to enter electoral politics was Representative Barbara Lee, was elected to Congress. 
she and Representative Mark Pocan of Wisconsin set about transforming the Progressive Caucus from what former co-chair Raul Grijalva had described to me as a, quote, Noam Chomsky book reading club into a cohesive unit capable of wielding influence. In 2018, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez upset Joe Crowley, her suggestion of a, quote, sub-caucus that could be more nimble and vote as a block was seen internally as both a hopeful sign and something of a challenge. If the caucus didn't get itself organized, it would be supplanted by something else. During the next Congress, progressives withheld their votes in committee in a fight to strengthen H.R. 3, the bill that allows Medicare to negotiate drug prices. They won. Trump was still president, and little that the House did was going to become law, but it was a preseason win of sorts that showed the tactic could work. In early 2021, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer used CPC intransigence to persuade Manchin not to push too hard for deep cuts to unemployment benefits, telling him progressives would take the whole bill down in the House if he did. Over the summer, the number of progressives willing to hold the line on the infrastructure bill continued growing, particularly as the holdout senators refused to even lay out what they were for and against. But it wasn't a certainty until this week that the progressive bloc could hold strong. Ocasio-Cortez said she doesn't blame Gottheimer for miscalculating. Honestly, I see why he was so certain. CPC never stood up like this until this week, she said. Until this week, the most we could scrounge together for a showdown was like 14 members. One signal that the progressive spine was much stiffer than people realized was the entry of two unexpected fighters into the fray. One was Brendan Boyle, who we interviewed two weeks ago. A member of both the New Democrats and the CPC, he wasn't the type of firebrand you'd expect to be out there making wild threats. Yet there he was, publicly, on the record, standing beside the squad. Internally, the effort got a major boost several weeks ago from Bonnie Watson Coleman, who at 76 is in just her fourth term in Congress and survived catching COVID amidst the chaos of January 6th. Watson Coleman was a leading statewide politician in New Jersey who became state party chair and General Assembly majority leader, titles not typically associated with comrades of the squad. But in a caucus-wide meeting several weeks ago, she galvanized the push to keep both pieces of legislation linked by speaking out on behalf of the strategy. And on Thursday, she was one of just three progressives called into a meeting with Pelosi as it all hung in the balance. We're joined now by Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman. So when, when you first got to Congress, I think a lot of people didn't, didn't realize quite how progressive you were. And I'm curious if that is something that's that a misperception that people have had of you throughout your career. I think they, they see, oh, this is somebody who was, you know, Democratic State Committee chair. This is somebody who was majority leader. You know, th- this is somebody who is somebody who's, you know, comfortable working with the establishment, has been, been part of the establishment. She couldn't be an outspoken progressive, like the people in the squad. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet, yet legislatively, some of the, you know, the most interesting things you've put forward, uh, you, you introduced a job guarantee with Ilhan Omar, and then you introduced a bill uh, to decriminalize drugs across the board with, with Cori Bush. Is that a misperception that people have had of you for a long time? And where, where do your uh, progressive politics come from? Well, I think if you ask anybody about me in the state legislature or even in state government, they'll say that she was always fighting for civil rights and equal rights and mm-hmm. affirmative action. And, and wherever government wasn't serving the needs of the people that it should, she was speaking up then. 
if that has translated into being a progressive, that is just who I've always been. I mean, that was who my father was. That was who grew out of a family that spent at least Sunday dinners, if not every night, talking about politics and our obligation to others. Um, my, my family was very much into to whom much is given, much is required. And if we're not wealthy, but whatever we have, we should be sharing and we have a responsibility to look out for those who don't have voices. So that's what I did. I mean, that's that's the way I lived my life. That's the way I did my my work, my legislation on the state level. When I came to Congress, that never changed. So, you know, one of the first bills that I introduced was a, a bill that would make sure women who found themselves pregnant could have access to, to ch- change their health care needs. Um, the, the Guaranteed Jobs Program, the uh, Substance Abuse Reform Act, the decriminalization of personal use are, were a reflection of what I saw would address what was happening to communities, particularly poor communities, black and brown communities, and how the system was treating them differently and how their opportunities for a good, decent life to take care of themselves and their families was impacted by things that were supposed to be neutral on their face, but had a disparate impact on black and brown and poor. Can you talk a little bit about the substance abuse legislation? Where have you have you found you've been able to make some some progress? I mean, obviously the party is not willing to go mm-hmm. that far, but where do you see that heading? Most recently, I saw a bill that we passed that that that, that addressed fentanyl, and and I've seen bills that we've we've considered that get at pieces of what what I'm trying to accomplish, like making sure that people aren't, people are recognized to have mental health problems or physical health problems, as opposed to needs to be incarcerated. And so, as you know, this particular Congress has been so involved in so many things simultaneously that while I have a number of co-sponsors on both of these bills, we've not been actively... (laughs) Pursuing them, we've been trying to get these two infrastructure bills mm-hmm. done because we think that they have such a, a transformative impact on our collective communities, on, on, on our economy. I haven't tested how far the caucus would go on this issue. I know that when we found that white folks, particularly young white folks and middle class white folks, were addicted to opioids, that we recognize that that substance abuse was a healthcare issue and not a criminal justice issue. I simply want that issue of substance abuse, personal use, to be treated in that same manner, Mm -hmm. uh, irrespective of what the substance is. Because I believe that there's an over-incarceration of minorities in particular uh, because of their substance abuse use. And I believe that they're incarcerated, they're not treated, um, they're not given the kind of therapies and, and opportunities to clean up. They go in, they spend their time, and they come back out um, just as fragile and uh, vulnerable as when they went in. And, and that's wrong. Now, with regard to the guaranteed jobs issue, we also know that there's an underrepresentation of minorities in the workforce and that there are communities with high unemployment disproportionate to the national unemployment rate. 
And we need to think creatively about how do we make those communities healthier and stronger and safer. And one way is to provide good, decent paying jobs with the kind of support mechanisms, whether it's paid family leave and things of that nature, so that people have a way out of poverty. And we figured that we could try it even as a pilot and that we could do it at no cost to the taxpayers because we would look at a transaction fee that takes place on Wall Street that over a 10-year period would, would raise something like 700 and some billion dollars. So it would be money used for a good purpose. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So on that question of moving people out of poverty or giving people pathways out of poverty... I wanted to ask you about the fight over the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the concurrent reconciliation packages that's going along with it. You've played really kind of an outsized role in those negotiations. A few weeks ago, there were some people in leadership who, or there were some elements of leadership that were starting to think about separating the the two tracks that had been linked together for, for a while. You pushed back against that in uh, you know a caucus meeting with with the rest of the Democrats. What what kind of argument were you making at the time? Well, first of all, the very first the first time, I just simply asked for clarification because I thought that we were always going to be considering these bills at the same time, and that since we couldn't have just one big bill, we had to have these two bills that we would have a verification of the reconciliation bill that I think is so vitally important before we voted on the uh, bipartisan bill. And so that was my question. Am I hearing this? What am I hearing now? Uh, Explain this to me because everybody is kind of talking sort of vaguely about what we're going to do. But the bottom line is this. You know, this is the president's agenda, and we support this agenda fully. We want to get to yes to both of these bills. This is a very transformative opportunity that I call this our FDR moment where we're not going to leave minorities out. And I call it the LBJ movement where we're going to make sure that everyone is included here. But it looks at not only the physical buildings that need to be that need to take place, the roads and bridges and things of that nature. But it also looks at the family structure, the human structure infrastructure that needs to be protected and and bolstered and uh, given the freedom to participate in our economy moving forward. The reconciliation bill has amazing things in it that, that go from 
child care to child tax credits to equality in education to free public two-year college education. It goes to extending Medicaid to states who didn't want to do that, making sure people have access to health care. It extends what Medicare would cover. It also has more investments in climate that are really very important to what we're seeing, that we're experiencing and recognizing. We got to get on top of this stuff because this the threat to our well-being is right now. And so to me, I thought every Democrat, I would think every elected official would be supportive of this kind of family infrastructure plan and that I recognize that the whole country is very much in supportive of the elements of that reconciliation plan and that it's Republicans, Democrats, independents, and anybody else that when you ask them, do you support these initiatives, they say yes. Um, They say yes at least 61% of the time. In some respects, some of these elements are even beyond 61%. So having said that, we believe that in order to get that, for for this country and for this economy and for our future. We must stick with the president and we must stick with the speaker and we must hold fast to get both of those initiatives uh, dealt with in a verifiable way before we vote on the uh, bricks and mortar bill alone. We know that that's going to pass at some point, but we're gonna make sure that that uh, reconciliation bill, which is equally important, passes. And when when progressives started making that that demand there were a lot of people who would said yeah 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 this is what progressives do they make these demands and then we can ignore them and they'll just fold and they'll and they'll go away but when you first with your clarification question in in caucus but when otherwise when you publicly said no 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 i'm with them i'm part of this organizing effort mm-hmm. brennan boyle who we had on here recently when he joined people started thinking oh this is this is a broader and deeper mm-hmm. alignment than we previously had understood. And yesterday, so we're recording this on on Friday. So on on Thursday, the House had been planning on voting on this on this bipartisan infrastructure bill in the in the afternoon, you and representatives Pramila Jayapal and, and Katie Porter met with the House Speaker about going forward. What was the message that that was that she conveyed in that meeting? And what was the response from from the progressives? So the speaker has been consistent in her support of this uh, reconciliation bill. She says, you know, this is the culmination of all of her work uh, for the children, for the children, for the children. And she has been very strong in saying that we need to do both of these bills. She needed to understand that there was this broad support in her caucus to support her and the president in advancing this agenda. We know the speaker's reputation. She's not faint of heart, and she doesn't put bills before the House to vote on that don't have the votes. And we were quite clear that there was a diverse and robust group of members in her House that are going to hold fast to demand that we get to deal with the reconciliation bill and that we get a verifiable, and I have to keep saying that, Mm -hmm. verifiable commitment from the Senate on voting for that bill. Because we thought we had a deal. We wanted 
6.5 trillion. We end up with 3.5. We're not getting everything we want. America doesn't get everything it needs. But it is a transformative move forward. And it is a once in a lifetime opportunity for many of us who are in Congress. And for the people, we can't give up on this. So, you know, there was this sort of back and forth. I don't even understand why they moderate said, well, you got to give us the vote by such and such a day. Why? Why can nine people tell you when we got to give the vote on this issue? There's no linkage to something that has to be done at that time. You know, we need to, to do our work. We need to get to the point where we can go forward and move forward and, and achieve a yes on, on this movement forward. But we can't do it by not dealing with the reconciliation bill. It doesn't work for the country. That's not what people sent us here for. That's not what Joe Biden promised when he was running and even when he got elected. And we're standing with the president. It's not our agenda. It's the president's agenda. We happen to agree with the majority of that agenda. One thing I haven't quite understood is, given how moving these two together is, as you said, the most likely way that you're able to get both of them done. Why is it that the speaker and, and to some extent the, the president were pushing yesterday to move the bill through? Or did they just want to be caught trying and show the moderates that, that they had tried? And I shouldn't say moderates because most of the caucus is for this bill. There's just this small rump group of a handful of Democrats who were breaking off. Well, this is my take I don't think the speaker was trying to force the vote yesterday. I think she was trying to completely understand where her caucus was. Mm -hmm. Like I said, she said she's not bringing votes up before the floor that don't have the numbers to pass the, the votes. And so I think that she was still in and will continue to be in information gathering mode. And I think that she will find that we are steadfast in this and that the actual number of people, I don't know exactly. I know it's a goodly amount, and it seems to be growing. Because when we get people to understand this, fundamentally, there's no reason that we have to take this vote. There's no reason that right now we've got to put people on the record, yay or nay, on this bricks and mortar vote without having this reconciliation where it needs to be. So if we hold fast we can get to the reconciliation. People can understand that this is serious, that we're not playing, we're not wavering, we're not weakening. We believe that this is the right movement on behalf of the people in this country, on behalf of this country, on behalf of this climate, on behalf of this economy, and that we want the opportunity to vote on both of these bills. But we know from history what happens to these important initiatives on behalf of working families and the care economy and child care and education and things of that nature if we don't hang together here. And we are going to hang together. And did you get the sense that the speaker was either was frustrated at the opposition or was she or was part of her encouraged that it meant, okay, now I'm, I, now I am gathering information because right. you don't really know where the votes are until you really whip it hard and, and push. And okay, now I know where the caucus is and we can move this to the next phase. So this is what I do know. 
I do know that the, that the speaker is very much committed to the elements in the uh, reconciliation bill that she has spoken to those things since I got into, came into the House. And so I know that they are important to her. I know that the speaker as the leader and the unifier of the, the House wishes that, you know, we could move together as one right now, and we will at some point move together as one. And so she's put a lot of effort into this. I don't want to say that she's frustrated. She's strategic. She is strong and she's committed. So I think that she's going to do everything she can to see that we can get to yes. And Joe, Joe Manchin is, seems to be kind of holding firm at this point at, this, at his $1.5 trillion line. Are there any red lines that the Progressive Caucus is trying to draw or what, what's, what's the strategy to try to find common ground with, with him and with, with Kirsten Cinema? So our position has been, you know, we started out with a $6.5 trillion uh, hopefulness expectation and we accepted the $3.5 trillion as a compromise because we thought it moves us in the right direction significantly. We're not, we're not going to negotiate against ourselves. Here's to me a light at the end of this tunnel. It was not until yesterday that Joe Manchin would even give us a top line and some substance that he wanted to see in in the bill. So I think that that's movement, that he recognizes that we are serious in the House about where we stand on behalf of the families in this country. And so that thought that was good news that he even ventured out and to say that I could go for 1.5 trillion. I think that was just an arbitrary number that he kind of threw out as a way of saying I've got impact on these negotiations. I honestly, God can't figure out representative cinema. I don't know what she believes in. Mm -hmm. I don't know what she's, whose drum beat she's marching to. And you served with her in the house briefly. I did. I did. I served with her. And I knew she had always had good, strong relationships with Republicans. I didn't necessarily see her in this sort of position that that she finds herself in right now. And I compare her to Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly is running from the same state. He's actually up for re-election. And I look at the way he votes and look at the way she votes and, hey, I don't understand. I don't want to characterize it. I just can tell you I don't understand her. And after last night, where are you on the optimism scale that something good is going to come out of this on a, let's say a, a one to 10, where a one is, this is all going to fall apart and a 10 being, <laughs> we're going to get everything we want. I don't think we ever get everything we want because if we got everything we want, it would be one bill and it would be 6.5 trillion. But I think that this is an encouragement that people recognize that there's serious opposition to leaving families out of the guarantee that something is going to happen. I pray that what happens is that we recognize that we do have time to work this out and we shouldn't move hastily into trying to take any vote or stake out any claim in a vote until we work this out on behalf of all of our families. And, you know, it's not about me. It's not about those individuals in the Progressive Caucus. This is the president's agenda. And this is what he sees as his vision for the economy and for the country, for the people and for the systems that haven't worked and need to work, and at the same time to build up and protect our infrastructure, which is sorely in need as well. And so 
I am definitely there. I, I want to vote. I want to vote for this bricks and mortar infrastructure plan. I support it, but I want to make sure that families are treated with the respect, the dignity, and the protection and the guarantees that they need so that we all can benefit with this economy moving forward and that there are the significant investments into addressing our climate needs, that we are ensuring that the future for my, my grandchild and her children and her children's children will be safe and healthy. Well, Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Ryan. That was Bonnie Watson Coleman, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Rick Kwan. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.